Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Hannah Blackiston. Joining me today to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later on in the Mumbrella cast, I will be talking to Sevens Kurt Burnett, Charlotte Valente and Angus Ross about taking the fight to nine. We think it's really going to take the fight up to Married at First Sight in, in Q1 as something fresh and different. What's new for marketers? And if we, and we truly believe that if we offer a better viewing experience, it's going to make for a better advertising experience. And fixing past mistakes. James made no secrets at our 2020 upfront that we were tired, stagnant and stale. But first, the week's topics. Christmas comes to Adland. Nicola Lewis heads to Europe for Finecast role. Existing formats delivered differently. What to expect from Seven in 2021. So first up this week, we saw Christmas trees in our stores and the first drip drops of Christmas ads in our inboxes. Before we get into discussing some of those ads we've seen, Zoe, I know you've already started talking to agencies about what they've got on the horizon for Christmas. What do you think the vibe is currently in the industry? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking for months in our team about I really hope that we never see a Zoom Christmas ad. And so I had like it had it sparked a bit of an interest for me um looking at how agencies are going to approach it and the general vibe that I've gotten is that um I mean it'll depend on the client but you can't ignore it. That's what a lot of agencies have said to me. I think the main train of thought is if you don't acknowledge COVID in any sense going into Christmas, you're just going to be completely out of touch with consumers, particularly given, I suppose, what Christmas represents for the majority of the population, uh, which is, you know, family time coming together. It often involves a lot of interstate travel, which, you know, might be a bit different and challenging this year. And so with people potentially not being able to see family, I think that's going to be reflected in the way that advertising addresses Christmas. I think, yeah, there's sort of two ways it might go, I think, depending on the brand. I mean, you can definitely lean into that sad Christmas ad, you know, I'm so alone, etc. But I think the what we will see is a lot more of that kind of gentle acknowledgement of COVID, which is like what we've seen with new ads from Optus recently and NAB, where you can kind of read the context of COVID, but it's no like we're here with you. This year's been so challenging. This year's been like nothing we've ever seen before. It'll just be like, you know, the context and perhaps like there might be a video call of Nan like in a different state at the dinner table, but nothing that explicitly mentions it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you say, you know, most likely we're going to start seeing brands acknowledge it in one way or another because the first uh, cab off the rank we had this week was Kmart and this is their first campaign, uh, first new work from their new agency DDB Melbourne and there is not a hint of COVID in this campaign. This seems to be a Christmas ad that could have run any other year. Zoe, what did you think of it? Another contributing factor to the way Christmas ads unfold this year is production. Um, this Christmas ad from Kmart 
Kmart is a Melbourne-based client. It's from DDB Melbourne and they, um, in the comments that they gave about the ad, they acknowledged that, you know, the production was a challenge for them. I think perhaps it's a little bit reflected in the execution of the ad, Um, but it is nice to see quite a positive tone with Chris, like with the way that they've addressed Christmas, like that kind of introducing that theme of like childhood wonder with the little girl driving the monster truck and handing out presents to her family members. I think for Kmart, I don't think necessarily Kmart needs to address the COVID in its Christmas ad. I think we'll see that more from like the supermarkets where it's a bit more about the family meal and the food and everyone coming together. Whereas for something like Kmart, it's a bit more about the gifting and the presents. Um, it, it wasn't what I expected from DDB, to be honest, but I think it's still a very strongly branded Kmart ad. Like it definitely feels like the brand and I think that's what's important overall. Yeah, definitely. I think when, you know, big companies like Kmart change agency, there is a danger there that a new agency might not be able to kind of handle what they've done traditionally in the past. And I think when you think of Kmart ads in the past, there's always a a jingle or an earworm attached to them and they're very high energy and very fun. But this ad definitely still played on that vibe for me. It was just kind of a slightly different execution than what we've seen from them in the past, but it still very much had that Kmart flair, I thought. Um, another Christmas ad we saw this week was from the jeweler Michael Hill. This one, it, I watched it a couple of times and I can't decide if it was hinting at COVID or if it wasn't hinting at COVID or if it was just hinting at how hard life is as a busy mum. But Zoe, what did you think of this one? Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think you can read it as mum's life's been really challenging because of COVID or you can just read it as mum's life is really challenging, both of which are very fair assumptions and ways of reading the ad. Um, the only thing from me would be that with this one, so for people who haven't seen the ad, you know, it's a mother of two little kids, like going through the day-to-day, facing some day-to-day challenges. Obviously, there's a bit of a sad kind of tone over the first part of the ad and then we reach Christmas Day and the kids have gifted her like this shiny necklace from Michael Hill and I just don't know how I feel about this one. I mean, it was from CHE Proximity and, again, I think it just wasn't what I expected from that agency. It it just played into a very standard stereotype for jewellery brands at Christmas time. Like it's either, you know, appreciate your mum more, like it could be a Mother's Day ad, appreciate your mum more, give her Michael Hill for Christmas. Or the other stereotype would be, you know, useless male partner doesn't know what to get his wife and so she just leaves Michael Hill catalogs all over the house and then he buys her the jewellery, you know. I just I didn't think it was groundbreaking. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I'm not sure that um, I think Michael Hill is probably quite a traditional advertiser, I would say. I think you're right. They do play into those stereotypes. We've definitely seen those campaigns from them before. I think Yeah, to me, it was quite interesting that it was quite vague. It was just, you know, like mum's had a stressful year, buy her a pretty necklace. And it was, yeah, I don't know if they were deliberately trying to be vague to make it, you know, you can read into that whatever you want for your year. Um, But yeah, it didn't, definitely didn't stand out for me. And I think 
I'm not sure it'll set the world on fire at all, but it'll be interesting to see how many more uh, companies we see kind of doing that. You know, here's a vague suggestion as to why your year has been difficult, but, you know, we're not going to say the C word because we're too scared of making you think that before Christmas. Next up, Nicola Lewis leaves Australia for Finecast. Group M's Chief Investment Officer Nicola Lewis is leaving the role, but she won't be leaving the Group M family. She's headed to Europe to become the chief, the global chief growth officer for the agency group's addressable TV business Finecast. Brittany, this news came in on a day that you went in, and I think I texted you straight away because Nicola is a very big part of Group M, but she's also a really big part of the industry. You would be hard pushed to have seen an industry event that she hasn't spoken at, seen a panel that she hasn't been on. We don't know yet who's going to replace her in this role. Um, Group M did say that announcement will be on the way. I imagine, though, that those will be some really tough shoes to fill. Yeah, totally. So I was chatting to a few people in the Group M stable this week and the the consensus was very much that everyone is really sad to see Nicola go and she's one of those kind of key pieces in their executive team, in the Group M culture. And while she'll still be within the business in some way, it's a real loss for this market. So obviously Nicola's from England originally from the UK, so she's got family back there. I understand that, you know, her and her partner are building a house in Barcelona and she'll be mainly living in Spain and kind of working in London but at the moment you know with with COVID and remote working I think it poses a good opportunity for her to relocate maybe you know get closer to family have a different type of lifestyle than the one she has here but still be part of the Group M kind of culture and mission and and fine cast which I think from memory is the fastest growing Group M business so look, it's a big role. It's an exciting role for her. I think the decision for her seems like a really good one. And when I read the news, it seemed like, oh, of course, like this is a great move for her. But yeah, for the local market, it will definitely be a loss, I think. Um, One of the things that kind of struck me, obviously, Group M would have known this move was coming, you know, any of these kind of inter-business roles where quite you know, prominent people change over have always been planned for months in advance. I have a feeling that they must already know who's going to be replacing her. It seems unlikely they're going to bring somebody in from outside unless they've already, you know, done those interviews and got that person lined up. To me, this just seems like one of those ones where they're trying to give the two announcements breathing room. Is that the sense that you got to? Look, it could be. I don't have too much of a sense of this one. I mean, I think these roles are always tricky to fill. Yes, obviously we're in a market where there's many more people looking for jobs than there are jobs available. But when we're talking chief investment officer level, there's a very small handful of people who would be suited for this role, let alone people who are also looking for jobs. You know, there's been a few shakeups this year already. One that comes to mind is Craig Cooper, for example, going from publicist to CARA in a chief investment officer role. So, I'm not too sure. I don't I don't feel like I have a gut instinct as to whether or not Group M knows who they want. 
I know that she's not leaving until the end of the year. So perhaps she's still involved in the recruitment process. Perhaps they're looking to get someone in at the start of next year, whether or not that's an internal promotion, someone from outside. I'm not sure. I don't have a good read on that one. Nicola, wasn't there any staffing change we saw this week? Sachi and Sachi's Executive Creative Director, Rebecca Carrasco, also left her role. Um, She's leaving the business to focus on her PhD. Zoe, one of the things that really stuck out to me in that story was in the quote that we were provided from Rebecca about her exit. She said that the industry had changed so much over this year and this seemed like the best time for her to take some time off. What do you think she meant by that? I mean... I think with this year, particularly on the creative side, as budgets shrink, that really tests creativity and tests what you're able to do with the money that you're allocated. So I think that's really causing a lot of agencies to reconsider what their offering is and how they can adapt and evolve quickly to meet what they'll be able to produce for marketers and what marketers are demanding. So my take on it is there's a there'll be a greater push for if you're looking at integrated campaigns a greater push for earned media ideas to be the spark of an integrated campaign and then on the other side of it smaller like creative solutions within the business that sort of incorporate that tech and digital side of things another thing that's been said to me a couple of times by people in the industry is that they think that Adland is going to move back to full service models. So we'll see a lot more agencies coming together or agencies building out capabilities in things like CX, digital, and potentially even bringing media back into the creative side of things or creative back into the media side of things. Um, And it's interesting to me, I mean, so reflecting on what Rebecca said in her exit quote, she's saying that it's the right time for her to leave to finish her PhD, which is actually about the value of creative ideas. So I think in a way she's really right that now is the best time to look at it because creative ideas are going to be tested more than ever before. And so I think now would be the perfect time to study that. I think as well what we're kind of seeing across the industry is a lot of people I'm sure I've seen this quote from more than one person who's left a fairly big role this year. We're seeing people, you know, reassess as the media industry shrinks a little bit, whether this is an industry they want to be a part of, whether maybe they want to be a part of it in a different way to the way they have been up until this point. Britt, do you think we're going to continue seeing these big staffing changes into next year? Yeah. This is a conversation I was having earlier in the week, actually, and I kind of think about it in two ways. I think at the senior end of the scale, there's a lot more stability, obviously. If you're going into a new role, there's more likelihood that that role is less at risk than another role. And if, you know, you're taking time out or you're, you know, pulling back a bit to reassess, maybe popping up at a later stage, you're in a better financial position to do so. Whereas at the junior to mid end of the scale, there wouldn't have been much movement this year at all because simply, you know, the situation that we're in, it's it's too risky to take on a new job and hope that that job lasts you through probation and the business does well enough for you not to be, you know, last in, first out. I think moving into next year 
as things stabilize a little bit, there'll be more movement at that end of the scale. I think there's been a wide array of approaches to COVID this year in terms of how companies have handled it. And I guess when I say that, I don't necessarily mean the measures because the measures have been, you know, kind of across the board, redundancies, stand downs, pay cuts, some form of that approach. But the way that those approaches have been implemented, I think, has varied vastly. The effect on morale and culture that that's had has varied vastly. There are some people who feel more than ever that they're proud to work for the agency and holding group that they work for. And there are lots of people, I think, who are hanging on for things to get a bit more stable so that they can kind of put their head out in the job market. So I think there'll definitely be more movement next year when it comes to junior to mid-level. As far as senior level goes, I think it's been more stable this year, but there'll always be kind of shifts, especially as things kind of recover and stabilize and companies who do have a good shot at doing well post-COVID kind of sell that to potential talent. Yeah, Britt, I think your point on that is really interesting because that's a conversation I've had with a couple of people as well is that right now, you know, you're hanging on, if you're in a junior to mid-level job, you're really hanging on for dear life and hoping you can get through this. But the measures that that different agencies have taken, I mean, based on what I've heard from different people, it's really made people on those levels kind of think about if you trust your employer, how how secure you do feel at that agency, whether you feel like it really is that right fit for you. So I think it's going to create a really large amount of churn over the next couple of years. And I think, I mean, from the creative side of things, looking at people going from senior art director to creative director to ECD, that's going to be quite an interesting process and we'll probably see a bit more agency hopping between agencies so you could get up to that higher level. Something I chatted to someone about last week was um, we're going to see less talent moving overseas. I mean, in Adland, you often get people do their two-year working visa over in London or take some time and go over to New York because the call of those like big international clients is just irresistible. But now, I mean, at least for the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot less of that mid-level talent moving overseas. So I think it's going to create quite an interesting bubble in Australia. Also, as people try and get back to Australia from their time overseas as well. Next up, what did Seven deliver in the final commercial free-to-wear upfronts event? Seven was the last commercial free-to-air to deliver its upfronts event uh, with its presentation happening virtually this week. And while there weren't very many surprises in terms of content, we already knew the network had snagged The Voice from Nine and Big Brother, Farmer Wants a Wife and SAS Australia will all be entering their second seasons with Seven next year. The network pointed very heavily to disruption, but in a good way for 2021. Brittany, what did you take away from the upfronts event? Look, I think James Wilberton, CEO of Seven, has only done two upfronts now, but in both of those upfronts, he's been very honest. I think it would have come across as disingenuous if he wasn't honest, both last year and this year. But for this year, I mean, we know that Seven has had a rough year. We know that they've had 
a lot of programming and production impacted by COVID. We know that they've been chasing nine rather than the other way around. So I think if he had have glossed over that, particularly given his speech last year, media buyers and advertisers would see straight through that. And I think that honesty was really appreciated. He said that, you know, the first half was not up to scratch, said that the second half they've really turned things around so far from June until now in October and kind of kept saying like, you know, no more excuses from us, don't bet against us. There was a very funny quote in there about, you know, if you don't think that Seven is in good shape and you don't think that Seven is doing well as a business, maybe question the owner of the publication that you're reading that in. So, look, there was a bit of a bit of fight from James and Seven, I think, and I think that that's what they needed to come out and do. Yeah, I think one thing you can't accuse uh, Seven of being is indecisive. They, you know, things happen and they respond to them. Obviously, this year they weren't able to deliver some of the formats they wanted to. Holy Moly, which was filming in the US, had to stop. They've responded to that by building an entire Holy Moly course in Australia. Um, there were some other shows as well. SAS Australia obviously running way later than they had hoped it would be. Um, but I think if you also look at what was missing from their lineup, so House Rules and My Kitchen Rules both have been rested, was the term used, for next year. Whether we'll see them come back after that, hard to tell. Plate of Origin, which obviously was a massive disappointment in seven slate this year, it will not be returning next year. We don't actually know whether it was ever meant to continue next year or whether it was just going to be a one year off, but obviously it wasn't able to run alongside the Olympics, which is what Seven had planned. It would have probably given it a way bigger push than it got this year. Um, But yeah, I think what you can really see from Seven and what I've definitely picked up from the industry is that people are really impressed at how quickly James has managed to do what he's done. He's only, as you said, been in this role for a very short amount of time. At the upfronts last year, he was basically on stage saying, our content slate sucks, we're going to fix it. This year still saw them hit with, you know, quite intense challenges from a production point of view. And yet they've managed to deliver a fairly decent turnaround in what's a trying year. I think the general consensus from people I've spoken to is imagine what they can do in a year where they don't have those issues. And to me, that was the upfronts event they managed to deliver. It was confident. It was, you know, ballsy. It was like everything you kind of associate with James, I suppose. Um, But, yeah, it was also our final uh, free-to-air commercial upfront for the year. So we've seen 9, 10, and 7 present now. You have been speaking to media buyers the whole way along, Britt. What's the consensus been? Look, I think... People were impressed with all three, for sure. One, uh, Paul Wilkinson from the media store went so far as to say that Seven was his favourite and that it was the best of the lot, which was a little bit surprising for me. I didn't necessarily expect anyone to make so bold a claim. I think for Seven in particular, the question that they have to answer next year is, is our tentpole programming going to live up to the expectations that we say it will? And do these formats, which are mostly old, you've got, you know, Big Brother, which has come back, Farmer Wants a Wife, which has come back, The Voice, which it got from Nine, Australian Idol, which is coming obviously in 2022, but was, you know, with 10 over 10 years ago and is coming back 
three of those are kind of talent-based shows, two are only singing shows and singing competitions. So the the sense that I got from media buyers was kind of the sense that I got myself, which is they'll have to kind of schedule those in a clever way and they'll have to make sure that something like Australian Idol comes back with a bang to really prove that bringing back those formats is a clever move rather than a tired one. So, look, I think across the board, all three did really well in a virtual format. All three were pretty short and sharp. I think it was what we expected from each of them. And I think, you know, buyers' sentiments definitely echoed that. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned programming in there. Um, Seven uh, have been pretty open that they're also going to be quite forward with their programming next year. And now that we've seen everyone's content slate, we can kind of, you know, get an idea of what 2021 will look like. To start with, uh, Seven is taking that fight straight up to nine. They're putting Holy Moly up against Married at First Sight, which up until this point has been almost completely unbeatable. I think that's a really interesting and bold move from them. There is a lot of hype around Holy Moly, I think especially because it couldn't air this year when they'd already kind of started plugging it a little bit. They've managed to get some, you know, decent celebrity action around it as well. There's obviously plenty of Australian celebrities around it, but they've also managed to get the US's Rob Riggle hosting it or acting as a commentator on it. So I think if anything's going to be able to go up against maths, it probably is Holy Moly. Obviously, Lego Masters is the obvious comparison there. That's been doing really well for Nine. It's a similar family-friendly kind of format. It's a similar, you know, not necessarily something you'd immediately think of kind of format. So it'll be quite interesting to see how well that does. Also, obviously, next year they are planning to be able to deliver the Olympics, which they couldn't deliver this year, even if that is in a different way to what we would traditionally think of as the Olympics, which we've, you know, kind of already had mentioned to us that it might be no audiences, it might be, you know, a lot more virtual stuff than they would usually do at an Olympics event. It's still guaranteed to be a massive ratings pool. So they'll be able to put that in their schedule alongside something that needs a bit of a boost. So yeah, I think um, what we can say is that next year is shaping up to be quite interesting in terms of ratings. And I think we'll probably see, even though this year has been a surprisingly tight battle, considering what could have happened with all the production issues we've seen, I do think next year is going to be even tighter. And I think it's going to be a really fun one to watch. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when I think of Holy Moly and the other show that Seven introduced which is ultimate tag they also gave me kind of nine ninja warrior vibes so I think it's very clever to not necessarily pit one of those up against ninja warrior directly since ninja warrior already has that established audience I think holy moly will definitely get curiosity viewers and if it's produced well enough cast well enough it could hold on to them I think for nine and maths, the challenge is, and it's the challenge with all of these sorts of shows, we're seeing it with, you know, The Bachelor and Bachelorette as well over 10, is that the further into these franchises you get, the more and more the casting has to absolutely be on point to get people coming back and feel like they're not seeing the same thing year after year. So I'm keen to watch that match up as well, particularly since maths has been so incredibly strong for the last couple of years. Yeah, also worth a point in there that, you know, Seven tried to replicate Ninja with Spartan, which did 
very, very poorly and disappeared very quickly. Um, One of the things that James mentioned a lot, um, and I think Angus mentioned too, is that Seven, you know, was formally in the area where they were creating their own formats. They were, you know, coming up with all their own stuff. They're obviously relying heavily on the Seven Studios business, which James is currently in the process of selling off. I think um, compared to that this year, they're going in for these proven existing formats they're revamping them in the case of the voice it's going to be a way shorter season they promised it's going to be a lot snappier that had been on nine when the ratings were starting to flag a little bit so yeah it'll be interesting to see if that ends up working out better for them they've obviously had some massive successes in the past mkr is a huge success for seven studios but it'll be really interesting to see whether you know with these big international formats that they've forked out money for whether they will perform because again if we look at the Masked Singer for 10, that was, you know, allegedly they spent an insane amount of money on that format and it performed really well for the first year. It was you know, a shock to all of us, I think, how well it performed. You know, the second year it didn't do quite as well as it did in the first year, but that's probably to be expected once the shine has worn off a little bit. So, yeah, we could see something like that replicated for Holy Moly. It'll be a one to watch, I think. Next up, I talked to Seven's Chief Revenue Officer, Kurt Burnett, Chief Marketing Officer, Charlotte Valente, and Director of Network Programming, Angus Ross. I am joined by Seven's Charlotte Valente, Angus Ross, and Kurt Burnett. Good morning. Hello. 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 Charlotte, let's kick off with you. We've just had your Upfronts event. And was this event different to the one Seven would have delivered had we not been in the middle of a global pandemic? Well, for a start, we would have delivered a physical event. Uh, We wouldn't have thought twice about whether that was the right or wrong thing to do. Uh, We would have taken the opportunity to connect with our clients face-to-face and our partners Um, So, you know, the big shift has been from physical to virtual, um, as has been for everyone. However, that's also presented some some real opportunities for us. Firstly, it's been really, really focused on what our key messages were um, and also understanding that we were limited in time, that many people would be connecting with us from home um, and we had to make it entertaining and you know, I, I know my attention span when it comes to virtual events is quite short. So we had to make it entertaining and succinct. Um, and I believe that that's exactly what uh, we uh, what we've delivered. Um, really, it's about showcasing, you know, the key opportunities that are going to allow brands to understand how seven fits into their um into their plans into 2021 and i don't even know how you begin to plan for another year when we're still not really sure when the restrictions that covid has brought in will kind of ease off or when you know we've obviously had a really tough year in terms of the ad market as well how did you go about setting up for the upfronts for next year with all those kind of uncertainties still sitting on the table I'll let Angus respond on our content, but really 2020 and the events of 2020 have nothing short of accelerated our plans. James made no secrets at our 2020 upfront that we were tired, stagnant and stale and uh, that our strategy was all around content-led growth. And that's exactly what we've, what we've delivered 
this year. Um, we have, I, I think these upfronts have, have allowed us to really show advertisers that we have a relentless commitment to being audience-centric um, and we now have an unrivaled end-to-end data offering in 7RedIQ. Everything that we have been able to to leverage from our own data to deliver more effective campaigns for our programs, we can now offer to um, to advertisers for them to have more effective campaigns, of course. Uh, and 2021, you know, is going to be, we are going to be home to the biggest events ever with Tokyo 2020 and seven months later with Beijing 22. And being able to offer that visibility in 2022 is so exciting. Um, you know, we're relentlessly committed to transformation, growth and innovation um, and being able to showcase the breadth of our content offering, which we believe to be the most exciting and disruptive content lineup of 2021, was really important for us um, and to really be able to hone in on what that actually means for our advertising partners. Yeah, so Angus, let's move into that content. Um, yep. Obviously, you know, upfronts every year we see a lot of people kind of promise consistency. But last year we did see James speak about, you know, being unhappy with Seven's existing content spine. Do you think that's now been turned around? Look, I think since June when our new content strategy kicked in with Big Brother, we at the time we said the year would be closer than what people thought it was going to be. And at the end of this week, it'll be 17 weeks apiece between us and nine, and it'll be about 0.4 of a share point in it for the year. So we're right, you know, right in the game. Uh, I think it's been pretty widely acknowledged that Seven got hit worse in production by COVID than any other network. We're basically three formats short this year. And with 2021, what we're really looking forward to is is going out there with all rounds in the chamber. Uh, we're planning to deliver a schedule that's different, disruptive, and with a bunch of attention-grabbing formats, um, you know, in line with our um, uh, strategy of commissioning proven power formats from external production houses. Um, so we're pretty excited about what we've got coming next year. We think we're really going to disrupt, particularly uh, in uh, Q1, which we're going to be kicking off with Holy Moly. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about some of those um, specific formats. Obviously, we kind of knew some of what was coming and we'd already known, for example, that you'd taken over the voice. Um, but what we didn't really know was how those would look on Seven as opposed to how they look elsewhere. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about that? Well, an example with the with the voice, clearly we're going to have uh, new coaches on the show. It's going to have a very different look and the format's um, going to be streamlined to um, really just include the highest rating components of, of that show. It's going to be more of a... Um, really a, a sort of four or five week event for us and it's going to have a whole new attitude and we're already seeing that in the results that we're getting in um, the casting for the show. ITV have been blown away by the number of different people that have applied this year um, versus uh, last time it was on nine so I think we're seeing very very encouraging signs um, there. Uh, holy moly uh, well you've seen the clips for that uh, we gave you a taste of it last year and 
like I like to say, good things come to those who wait. It was uh, uh, roundly well received at our upfronts uh, last year, and, and the same thing has happened again um, this year. So we're really excited by that. It's just been commissioned for a third season in the US. It's been a ratings powerhouse for ABC. Uh, we've built the entire uh, 18 holes here in um, in Queensland. Uh, actually, hoping a number of other international partners are going to be using uh, that course as well. But we think it's going to deliver, you know, a, a lot of humour, a lot of slapstick fun, and is a really good piece of counter-programming to kick off Q1 versus what we had uh, this year. We think it's really going to take the fight up to Merit at First Sight in, in Q1 as something fresh and different. And we think that's what people are waiting for, I guess, as an, as an example with um, SAS that we launched this week. It's a very different sort of format, very disruptive. It's highly emotional and intense, uh, and it's resonated with people. That's our approach for next year. Be disruptive. Yeah, I was going to um, ask you about that just while I've got a chance to get you so close to the premiere. It obviously did fantastic numbers for its first episode, and I know it was doing really well across social as well. Were you yeah. expecting people to respond so well to that program? Look, it was always, a, a, It's again, it's a proven format from the UK. It's on Channel 4 there. It does well for them, but they're a very different network for us, much narrower network. Uh, look, it was a riskier commission, but we felt timing is everything with these sort of shows. So I think it's, um, you know, it's it's maybe delivered higher than our expectations. Uh, we feel for a new format, we feel that the format has, um, has the strength to grow over the course of the run. It's um, people... Uh, you know, it's a cliche putting the real back into reality, but I really feel it's correct in this. And I haven't kind of seen a social media firestorm on a show uh, that's happened on, on this one for a long, long time. Um, it's got people talking and highly engaged, and we're looking forward to rolling out the remaining 10 episodes over the coming weeks. So, Kurt, now let's talk about advertising. We already saw during 2020 a number of different announcements from Seven, you know, some more innovations across that area. What are we expecting to see from Seven in 2021? Well, I think the key word is, um, you know, Angus has mentioned that uh, a couple of times and it is around disruptive. We're going to disrupt, you know, the content of next year. What we do is really going to bring a new audience, a different audience, and new ways of engaging with that audience is what we want to bring to um, to that new content slate. So things like uh, Red IQ, which you would have seen, um, which is really about uh, not just delivering a data proposition, but actually giving um, clients and partners a real view of what that data is doing um, what the people are doing on our ecosystem and then how we connect that up with our with our partners so a, a real look at how we can uh, offer planning buying and measuring propositions for data not just data for data's sake because you know that just having that data you know uh, big numbers doesn't really matter it's what you do with it and we're really leaning in, leaning in hard on that as you would have seen in the in the upfronts um, and the other thing, more broadly speaking, is we, we really, we, in Big Brother, we launched uh, reduced ad loads, um, and we call that EVE, so Enhanced Advertiser and View Experience. So we're really obsessed about making sure that the viewer uh, is getting a better viewing experience, um, you know, reduced ad clutter, um, no crashing of ads in 7 Plus. And if we, and we truly believe that if we offer a better viewing experience, it's going to make for a better advertising experience. And, you know, that's not, not just a one-off thing. Um, 
Hannah, we spoke about this back in April, I think, uh, as we we're about to launch it. And, and that's something that uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, new innovation around. The, the couple of things that we spoke about in the upfronts was um, the, the e-commerce part of that. So that was just enhancing the advertiser experience. So adding um, transactions in our content to make sure that we can not just build brands, but create purchase. Uh, the freeze frame um, into the into live streams, uh, programmatic freeze frame is on offer, um, which is just enhancing the 7 plus proposition. And also the personalization, very much around personalization. So when you come into 7 plus with a new look, which is just launched, uh, you'll be able to personalize what it is that you want to, uh, what, what type of content you want to see. I'm um, including, of course, the, the biggest of them all, the Olympics. When you go in, you can uh, choose your sport, you can choose your country, you can choose your athlete, and you can choose your language. So this notion of personalization really uh, accelerated through everything that we do. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, innovation that's coming and all of it designed to try and uh, take advantage of this new, fresh content slate that's coming in 2021 and 22, I might add, because remembering we did launch out to 2022 with the Winter Olympics, which is another very big announcement for us and one we're very excited about. Um, and for those if, who remember in 2018, just on, on the Winter Olympics, uh, you know, that helped broke all, all sorts of streaming records because had things like the snowboarding, very young younger demographics. So we're very, very excited about that. Uh, that whole 18 months is coming, actually almost two years. Yeah, just before we get into the Olympics, actually, because I do want to go there next, I'm just interested, as you've had a kind of a couple of months since you've launched things like EVE, are you starting to kind of hear back from audiences? Because these are obviously things that directly impact their viewing experience. So I would imagine that they're probably quite vocal in how they've received those. So, well, yeah, I mean, the audience, I mean, it's pretty... um you know, you don't have to run a survey for that. You just need to pick up the ratings. Um, and what we've seen is in those first um, 15 to 20 minutes that we have um, the Eve breaks, in particular for the 7.30 shows, uh, that, you know, the, the, the audience itself hangs in between 20 and 25% when those breaks aren't there, if that makes sense. So the engagement levels are up to 20 25%. And the research that we've done uh, with brands shows that the brand recall um, and consideration is up 10%. So there's very clear fact-based numbers to say that it is working from an audience perspective. They're hanging around longer to wait for uh, the content and watching the ads. And the advertiser is the beneficiary of that. So in that respect, it's um, the feedback's been t uh, terrific. So... Uh, Olympics, obviously, um, we, you know, we saw Tokyo 2020 delayed from this year and now you're able to announce two Olympics within seven months with Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022. Are you expecting that things will run the same as they would have run this year or should we expect some changes or what have you kind of got planned for Tokyo 2020? Well, you, you would have seen in the, in the upfronts there John Coates' comment on uh, you know, his view, John Coates, who's the uh, vice president of the IOC and also uh, the head of the uh, Tokyo Olympic um, Committee in running it. So his point was that uh, the new president, um, a prime minister, I should say, is, you know, fully backing as did Abe. So uh, very confident that's going ahead. Uh, Logistics-wise, um, the way that they will run it, there'll be some different things that they do, of course. Uh, but it was very, very encouraging to hear from John, and he was very happy to come on um, to talk about 
you know, the certainty of those games is, is, is the first point. Uh, and then as it relates to how we'll deliver it, I mean, we were ready to go uh, this year. You know, we, we were well, so clearly we're well advanced. And now what we've got an opportunity to do is, uh, is just to create some new um, propositions, you know, things like introducing that e-com sort of it, shoppable um, content, uh, that personalization, which I mentioned before, really leaning in on that and just uh, a whole lot of other things that we're going to bring in as it relates to ad innovation um, through the Olympics and just something that will also, going back to Eve, whatever makes a better viewing experience, you know, how, does, how do we make that product more sticky for um, Olympic fans? It's going to be the Olympic fan, but you know, this is going to be the biggest digital event in history, I mean, it's the scale is enormous. It's going to help us launch our um, our slate, uh, you know, coming out of the Olympic Games, um, and, and just something that I, I wanted to pick up on that too. Just that Angus uh, mentioned about the amount of different content and different audience that's coming in as a result of the content selection next year, with every show picked for a reason to deliver us growth next year on the key demographics. I mean, I've, I've been at Seven for a while, and I was thinking about this. Um, over the last few weeks, the last time that I can remember a change of this nature to our content was back in 2004, 2005, where we brought in Lost and Desperate Housewives and Dancing with the Stars, for that matter, um, all launched out of the Athens Olympics. So obviously it's a different time, different era, different shows. But just to talk about the magnitude of the change that's coming here and the audience shift that we believe is going to happen, uh, all launched out, of, you know, a great deal of that launched out of the Olympic Games. Um, you know, it's it's, it's going to be an extraordinary year uh, in 2021. You know, we are going to be the disruptors. We are going to be the challengers. And, um, you know, we're going to smash the status quo next year 100%. I think it's to Kurt's point about the content. The big change that's gone on since James joined us is giving us the freedom to have a really outward-focused commissioning strategy. We can now choose the, the best formats from the best producers around the world rather than having to develop our own formats, which, as you would know, for even the best production companies around the world, the... Uh, success rate for new formats is, you know, it's 25 to 30% if you're lucky. So now we can go for these proven power formats. And our strike rate this year with our external formats, Big Brother, Farmer Wants a Wife and SAS Australia, it's three for three. So just wait for next year. Our entire schedule is all going to be externally produced formats that we think can really deliver. So I just say, look out in 2021 uh, for our schedule. And just before we wrap up, I'm conscious we're running out of time, but Charlotte, I just really wanted to touch on data was a massive playing field at the upfronts this year for all the networks, but Seven's moving in that space too. Can you tell me just a little bit about that before we go? Yeah, sure. For us, uh, data is about um, living up to our commitment to being an audience-centric business. And that means knowing and understanding our audiences really being pivotal to our success. 
What we've managed to create with 7Red IQ is a platform for us to inform um, not only our content acquisitions, as you would have seen, um, you know, informing big decisions like commissioning the voice, for example, based on the understanding that we had of our audiences, but also using it for our own marketing campaigns and marketing purposes um, to better to deliver more effective campaigns for ourselves. And we just felt that there was a massive opportunity to strengthen that proposition um, and offer those people-based marketing opportunities to our advertisers. The data partnerships that we've created have been quite strategic. It's about covering the breadth of the understanding around lifestyle, shopping, uh, location or geo-targeting, um, and also being able to allow uh, advertisers to visualise that data um, to effectively plan, buy and measure. So, you know, 7Red IQ is all driven by um, a unique identifier in the SWIM ID or 7West Media ID, which is taking what our uh, audiences are doing within our ecosystem and then overlaying that with our partners and also fusing that with our advertising partners' um, own data to be able to deliver campaigns that not only um, are more relevant and to some extent personalised, but drive greater effectiveness and efficiencies for our advertising partners. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. Charlotte Angus-Kurt, thanks for being on the Mumbrella cast. Thanks. Thank you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Australia's biggest virtual media and marketing conference is just a matter of weeks away. You'll get four jam-packed days of unrivaled insights from global industry leaders, ample digital networking and more. This is your chance to get inspired by strong, informed opinions and world-leading case studies at Umbrella 360 on November 17 to 20. Tickets start from just $69 and you can go to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella360 for more info. That's it for this week, though. Thanks for joining me, team. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.